Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College, and I'm here today with my friend Chad Williams, the Samuel J. and Augusta Specter Professor of History and African and African American Studies at Brandeis University. He is the author, among other works, of Torchbearers of Democracy, African American Soldiers in the First World War, and he's here to talk about his new book, The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. If I recall correctly, the first time I heard about this project, you and I were in an airport shuttle from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham Airport, and you told me you were <laughs> thinking about writing a book on an unpublished W.E.B. Du Bois manuscript uh, about the First World War. And I remember thinking what a fantastic idea that was, how you were the perfect person to write it, uh, and, and I couldn't wait to read it. In fact, I think I told you to get working on it because I wanted to read it. So yeah. I'm delighted to see that it's done, <laughs> and I'm just so impressed with, with, with how good the book is. And I'm just delighted that we get the chance to talk about it here today. So congratulations, first of all. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Come a long way since that shuttle van. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we both were. That was pre-COVID. That was, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, it feels like it was a lot longer ago than it probably was. Um, this is this is a book about a book, which is one of the things that I that I love about it, a book that never ends mm. up getting published. Maybe tell yeah. us a little bit about who Du Bois was and why he wanted to write a book about the First World War. So W.B. Du Bois is arguably the greatest scholar, activist in African-American history. I would argue that he's one of the greatest intellectuals in American history, period, uh, regardless of race. He was singular. Uh, he was born in 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, during the presidency of Andrew Johnson during Reconstruction. He died in Ghana in 1963, literally right on the eve of the March on Washington. 95 years of life, just a, a remarkable life and career. Uh, he was the author of 22 single authored books, uh, wrote literally hundreds of, of articles, um, essays, editorials. Uh, he was a pioneer in history, sociology, wrote in a number of other different disciplines. Uh, he was one of the forerunners um, of the modern civil rights movement as we know it. Uh, he co-founded the NAACP. Uh, he was at the forefront of pan-African movements, anti-colonial movements. Uh, he was at the forefront literally of every single issue facing African-Americans and other peoples of African descent in the 20th century. And the book that you wrote is about a book that he, in fact, never published, which was uh, to be about the First World War. Uh, maybe later we can talk about his own personal transition in the First World War and what, what that war did to him intellectually. But I want to start just with the, the writing of this book. This is not a traditional biography, though obviously you, you tell your reader quite a bit about who Du Bois was and, and the intellectual and personal transformations of this, this great intellect uh, uh, that, that Du Bois was. Uh, I, I think I would have been 
a little bit intimidated to try to climb into the head of a man like Du Bois and try to figure out uh, how that brain works uh, or worked. How did you approach that process as you were designing this book? And were you intimidated by climbing into the head of one of the great intellectuals of American history? I was absolutely intimidated. I have no <laughs> problem in, in admitting that. Absolutely. I mean, Du Bois is just a towering figure. And for someone like myself, uh, who is rooted in uh, Black studies and the Black intellectual tradition, uh, Du Bois is is deified <laughs> in, in many ways. Um, and it was you know, really daunting to think about uh, approaching him critically, uh, to, as you said, uh, getting in, inside of his, his mind, um, but also approaching him as someone who, who failed. <laughs> who ultimately failed to produce what would have been one of his most significant works um, of history. When I started working on this project so many years ago, um, I was very hesitant to make Du Bois the center of it. I was really interested in the experiences of African-American soldiers and veterans, the ways in which they shaped this massive historical project uh, that Du Bois uh, devoted so many years to. But I came to the realization that this is ultimately a story about Du Bois. Uh, it's a story about him. It's a story about his reckoning with uh, the historical legacies of World War One, as well as the very complicated personal legacies uh, of World War One. And I needed to to step into that challenge of, of of tackling Du Bois. So, did you go through the process of sort of outlining various ways to to think about this book, or did you did you test out other ways of organizing the book? I mean, it, to me, maybe it's because I've read the book, but it's hard to it's hard for me to imagine doing this book without Du Bois being at the center of it. But you're right; there's a way in which you you could have done that. Did you did you explore other ways to organize this book? Uh, initially, and you know, the, the writing took place over over many years. I mean, I really uh, spent, I would say, a good uh, 11, 12 years writing uh, the manuscript itself. And it evolved um, over time. As I said, initially, I really wanted to make uh, the stories, the experiences of African-American soldiers and veterans um, at the center of the book uh, to kind of trace uh, their experiences and their, their memories of the war through the interwar period. Uh, then I kind of shifted to uh, writing kind of a more traditional intellectual history of the war um, and Du Bois's writings. Uh, but then I really wanted to ultimately tell the story of Du Bois to try and present a Du Bois that we're not familiar with. There's been so much written on on Du Bois, um, right, especially so Du Bois. The oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say Du Bois the failure is not a, a trope that we ordinarily associate with someone uh, as, as talented and as bright and as influential as he was. So yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. This is definitely taking our understanding of him in a different direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So I wanted to kind of move away from the traditional biographical studies of Du Bois um, to think about him in specific relationship to World War One, uh, something that I think we don't really fully understand. Usually our understanding of Du Bois and World War One is kind of stuck right in uh, the, the war itself and his infamous um, editorial that he wrote, Close Ranks. We really don't think about the ways in which the war impacted him and continued to impact him throughout uh, the interwar period. Um, so I really wanted to explore that Du Bois, the way the war uh, shaped his life, his work, um, and um, ultimately to present him as uh, someone who was much more complicated uh, than I think uh, we, we've commonly uh, come to come to see him. So, Chad, how different is the final book from the one that you initially set out to write? 
I think the book that I initially set out to write was, I guess, more of a traditional uh, intellectual history. Uh, but I really began to think of this kind of in a in a more expansive, even epic way and thought about storytelling. Um, I read a lot of books on screenplay writing um, to think about the different arts of the story to break it up into three distinct acts, um, the, the three parts um, of the book, um, hope, disillusionment, and ultimately failure. Um, so I was really kind of invested in, you know, telling the, the story uh, behind uh, Du Bois's book uh, and ultimately his evolution, um, really remarkable transformation from where he is uh, when I start the book at the beginning of the war in 1914 and really, um, especially in 1917-18 when the United States enters uh, the war, when he is advocating for African-Americans to to close ranks, to support their country, um, to uh, forget their special grievances, you know, really trying to stake claim to his uh, Americanness um, by, by supporting uh, the, the Allied war effort. Um, to where he ends up, um, where I conclude the book in in the 1950s, uh, when he's essentially a a pariah, persona non grata, because of his anti-war activities. In 1951, uh, the government puts him on trial, tries to throw him in jail uh, because of his association with the radical left and and the peace movement. Um, so it's really kind of this remarkable journey arc uh, that I wanted to, to trace in, in the final version of the book. Yeah, and I'm going to just tell our listeners, if they want to understand that arc better and trace that arc, they need to buy and read the book, which is just uh, fantastic. Um, I, I, there's something really quite meta about writing a book about a book, uh, especially a book <laughs> about an academic who's getting continually distracted by other projects and big events in the wider world. Um, right. were, were, were you aware of that, that you were kind of not quite following in Du Bois's footsteps, but 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 dealing with similar problems to the ones that he was dealing with? Did, did that did that hit you as you were doing this project? Well, it, it certainly hit me uh, when I would. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I would be suffering from writer's block that I'm going to end up at like Du Bois and, and not finish my book. Um, so that would have been really meta. Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, just trying to, to make sense of, of the wounded world and, and the, the title of Du Bois's book, The Black Man in the Wounded World was so evocative. And I just wanted to work with that title uh, with, with my book, but also thinking about what it means to, to live in a wounded world, what it means to write in a wounded world, what it means to write about uh, a, a wounded world. Um, I think that allowed me to, to, to form a sense of empathy with, with Du Bois and the challenges that he had to face uh, in, in dealing with his own wounds uh, about the, the history and his, and his personal uh, connections to the war, uh, in addition to uh, the larger context, the larger historical context, which I flesh out in the book that, that he was writing in. And you, you brought it up. I didn't. So I'll ask the question, what, what do you do when you hit writer's block? What, what is your preferred solution to work your way out of it? Um, play with my kids, go, go play <laughs> basketball, try and distract myself. Um, yeah. But but I will say I, I got to a point, um, and this was I guess around you know 2020, like when the, when the pandemic hit, um, I felt a really urgent need to to finish the book, um, and I just really pressed forward with with writing and revising uh, the final chapters. So kind of writer's block wasn't wasn't an option <laughs> at, at that point when it came to, to finishing the book. Um, but certainly writing it over such a long period of time, it came in, in, in fits and spurts. 
So it's a power through kind of mentality for you with with writer's block. Just get back at it. Just figure out what the problem is and just just keep pushing forward. Yeah, yeah. And I tend to think of writing in a lot of different ways, um, you know, even if it's not formulating a coherent uh, paragraph that could be taking notes, that could be reading, uh, you know, that could be, again, going through my research and just jotting down observations. So I think just kind of the daily practice um, of writing um, and being consistent uh, with with that was um, and still remains important part of my uh, my, my writing practice. Yeah, I, I do think that's a great way. Go back to your own research, read your own notes again, see what it was that inspired you to take that particular note in the first place. What what did you think was important about that and try to reconstruct that in your head is 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 a good way to go through that. Did you have a sense of how Du Bois dealt with with writer's block? Did he ever talk about that in any of the sources? Or maybe I don't he didn't know suffer from writer's block. I mean, he was so prolific. I've never seen any indication of Du Bois suffering from writer's block. I mean, again, the the manuscript that Du Bois produced and ultimately never finished over 800 pages long. I mean, so he was someone who, I mean, he was just such a, a prolific and insightful writer, um, produced so many works over such a long period of time, uh, but was, but, but would also produce works incredibly quickly, uh, as well. Um, so yeah, writer's block was something that I don't think Du Bois was accustomed to, um, but, you know, uh, and, and when, when I read Du Bois, I don't get the sense that there's a lot of kind of extraneous language in there either. Like even before word processing software or anything like that, I mean, he used a lot of words when he wrote, but he strikes me as somebody who was very careful and very choosy in the way that he put language together. So it's obviously someone who was spending a tremendous amount of time thinking through what that writing process was going to be like. I wish we could interview him. Obviously, we we, we, we can't, but <laughs> but but just yeah, reading his stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But but reading his stuff, you can sort of feel that process of his. And the other thing you can feel maybe is that he he sometimes had a difficulty scoping his projects, figuring out where, you know, where he was going to start, where he was going to stop. And yeah. I thought, did, did you worry about that, too? I mean, obviously, this book is five, 400 some pages of text, I think, could easily yeah. have been. 800, 1200. I mean, obviously there's a lot yeah, to say yeah. about this topic. Did you set right and left limits for yourself? Did you scope this project for yourself or did that evolve organically? Um, I think it e evolved organically. Um, I really didn't envision the book being 12 chapters. I didn't envision it stretching into uh, the World War II period and, and the aftermath of, of World War II. So really it was following my sources and really going where the story took me, uh, where, where Du Bois took me. As I was doing my research, I kept finding more and more references, uh, more and more direct connections to World War I uh, in Du Bois' writing, in his, in his activism throughout the 1930s, throughout the 1940s. I mean, he's reflecting on uh, the impact of the war and his genuine confusion about it really up until the last thing that he publishes, you know, his uh, postmodernly published uh, autobiography uh, in, in 1968. So it was really, um, it, it was really the, the story uh, that, that drove me. It was really Du Bois and his reckoning, his decades long reckoning with the history and legacy of the war that really dictated the, the scope uh, and expansiveness of, of my book itself. And that's the great part about research. You start to see how all the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle come together. You start to see how this ties to that, and you, you can actually start to see it develop right in front of your eyes. The challenge as a writer 
is somehow describing what that jigsaw puzzle looks like. Um, at least that's the way I've always thought about it. The research is finding the pieces and putting them together. The writing part is describing what's in front of you. So wh- who was your audience when you started this book? Who did you think you wanted to be writing to? The book is with a trade press, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which um, you know is a stage that many academics go through. I went through it too, where you kind of start with academic presses and then you begin to transition into wider audiences. Is that something you were cognizant of as well as you put the book together? I'm guessing it is because you were looking at screenplay writing and things like that. Yeah, um, initially I was I was certainly thinking about a more narrow academic audience. I was thinking about you know publishing with a, a university press uh, similar to my first book, a University of North Carolina press. Uh, but then I began to think about uh, the book on a broader scale. I give a lot of credit to my literary agent for pushing me to think about what the broader impact of the book could have, uh, what are the main themes that I'm wrestling with uh, in the book, how they could resonate uh, with a larger uh, reading public. So that's really when I began to think about the book as um, a potential trade uh, publication, uh, but also reaching a, a broader audience. You know, who are is- who are interested in certainly someone like Du Bois, someone like, um, you know, a, a subject like uh, the First World War, uh, but also interested in larger questions related to the history of democracy um, in the United States and for African Americans, uh, what it means uh, to be black, uh, questions of of loyalty and patriotism uh, that are still uh, deeply relevant today. Yeah, I, I I was wondering too if you felt the need to bring Du Bois to a new generation of readers. I mean, reading your book made me. I already had tremendous respect for W.E.B. Du Bois's intellect, his, the power of his intellect, the power of what he was doing. But I came away with even more respect after reading this book, more of a kind of, you know, I, sometimes some of the sentences that he wrote, you sort of stand awestruck in front of them. Uh, did, did you feel that this was something you wanted to do with the book, like you, you to, to make sure that people in, in the current day dealing with many of the same general problems, as you said, that Du Bois was interested in, did you want to make sure that people today understood where some of this intellectual energy is coming from and, and who he was? Certainly, as I, as I said, I, I wanted to present people with a Du Bois that they weren't familiar with and for people who knew nothing uh, about Du Bois to present him as someone who was absolutely singular uh, in his brilliance, uh, in his contributions to the Black freedom struggle, uh, someone who we should rightly revere, but someone who was also fundamentally human. Uh, someone who believed in America, uh, someone who believed that Black people deserved citizenship, someone who wrestled with the pain, uh, the um, uh, the disappointment um, of that not becoming a reality uh, in his lifetime, especially in the context of, of World War I, uh, someone who made mistakes, someone who, who failed, um, uh, but still uh, maintained a deep commitment to uh, freedom and equality for for Black people. As a writer and as an historian, too, there were parts where I kind of chuckled to myself because you describe a guy who is laser-focused on a project, but then other really interesting projects come across his desk, and he just gets distracted, as I know you have. I know I have. I mean, I've got a couple of projects right now. I'm trying to finish (laughs) up all at once. And you wrote at one point um, that the one that really distracted him was a history of Reconstruction. And you wrote... Quote, Reconstruction was history, whereas the World War and its aftermath was the present, which I thought was a really powerful and wonderful line. How much perspective do you think we get on Du Bois or you got as a writer on Du Bois from being 
a century past, of course, the closed ranks essay and a good 70 years, 60 years or so from his passing. Did that give you a perspective to understand him a little better, do you think? Yeah, I think historical distance is obviously very beneficial. Um, and that's something that Du Bois didn't have the luxury of uh, of having when he was he was writing. You know, as I said, he was able to ultimately complete Black Reconstruction, his massive uh, history of, of the Reconstruction era. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't able to finish his, his history of the Black experience in World War One, And I think that's just uh, incredibly telling uh, that he was able to develop um, and uh, kind of step into a, a type of historical distance uh, and gain a sense of historical perspective about the Reconstruction era that he wasn't able to do with uh, the history of the First World War, uh, as as you said, the legacies of which continue to unfold throughout the 1920s and 30s and really directed, uh, directly impacted him on, on a very personal level. Uh, so certainly us as historians, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to be able to have some distance from our uh, historical subjects, especially a topic um, like the First World War, you know, that we spent a lot of time uh, writing about. Uh, du Bois didn't have that luxury. He was literally yeah, he, a part. He was literally part of the history that that he was trying to write about. Yeah, it's one of the challenges for being a historian. We we have to constantly remind ourselves that the people we're writing about don't know how this is going to end. They don't know how this is going to unfold. And because it's something that I'm working on now, you had a comment too that when Du Bois saw the Treaty of Locarno, I think it was 1926, he thought, "Well, this is it. This is going to bring peace to the world." And you know right, this. Right. <laughs> that, that, you know, we're sitting here reading that and we know that Europe has 13 more years before it's going to go ahead and do this again. So right, right. It, it can be really complicated. And I know, you know, you and I have gone through formal training in graduate schools to deal with that problem, but I don't think it makes it any easier as a writer to put your head in that space and try not to put your head into the space where you know the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's, that's so true. And and that allowed me to, to have some empathy for Du Bois, for the, the challenge, as I write about in the in the epilogue, of what he was trying to do. And that challenge was the, the, the war itself, uh, its legacies, its enormity, uh, just the incredible repercussions uh, that it left uh, for the world, uh, that it still has, has left for the world. Um, you know, we we have the, the benefit of, you know, looking back and seeing the ways in which uh, the war uh, shaped the world that we live in today. Uh, but Du Bois was was right in, in the midst of it. Uh, so, yeah, he had a, a difficult task uh, ahead of him <laughs> in trying to write, you know, what he thought was going to be the definitive history of uh, of the war. I have my seminar here at the Army War College convinced uh, that they only really need to study two events if they want to understand at least European and, and much of the rest of the world, and that is the French Revolution and the First World War. If they can master those two <laughs> events, everything else is derivative, but we'll, we'll it, leave huh? that for another time. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of the sources that Du Bois used for the book came from Black veterans themselves. He asked them to send him letters, recollections, diaries. Um, what did that archive look like? I know you had the good fortune that much of it is in Massachusetts where you live, correct? So you had kind of regular nearby access to a lot of this. Am I right so, about that? So the actual, so the actual um, archive is in Fisk, uh, at Fisk University oh, in, Tennessee. in Tennessee. So I initially okay. looked at a, a microfilm edition, which was at the University of Massachusetts uh, Amherst. Um, then I spent considerable uh, time at Fisk University in their library and special collections 
going through all of these materials. It's just a remarkable archive, um, letters, diaries, um, personal photographs, portrait studio photographs of dozens of veterans, huge panoramic shots of entire companies, topographic maps. I mean, just a, a singular um, archive that was you know, really incredibly exciting just to, to spend time uh, going through to see all of these you know, really priceless uh, primary source documents, especially the ones that, that veterans uh, provided to him. Yeah, it's hard to explain uh, just how geeky historians can be when they get inside of an archive and how exciting that can be to us to, to yeah, see yeah. these original I mean, one, documents. One of the cool things I found, so Du Bois, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. See, now no, I'm you're good. We're talking, talking about, about archives. About you're good. <laughs> um, so, so Du Bois travels, as I write about in the book, he travels to, to France immediately after the armistice. Right? He's on the press ship uh, accompanying all the other journalists to uh, to to the peace conference uh, that um, that Woodrow Wilson is headed to, um, and I in the archive I found his train ticket uh, that he that he had uh, going uh, into Paris, the train ticket that um, that, that that he rode uh, from <laughs> from from the coast uh, into Paris. I mean, it was just like so amazing to see kind of this visceral example of okay, this is Du Bois. You know, he was. He was riding on a, on a third class, you know, train ticket into Paris in December of 1918. It was, yeah, pretty cool. Story. I just have, I just have to ask you, you, you saw it on microfilm, which I know we all despise as historians because we want to get and see the, 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 the paper. Uh, what did you see by seeing the actual documents as opposed to seeing them on microfilm? I just worked in microfilm for the first time and I don't know how long, a couple of weeks ago, hated the experience and really wanted to get into the paper documents. Um, what, what did that look like? What was that experience like to actually hold those documents in your hand? It brings it to life in, in a way that the microfilm doesn't. Um, to be able to see all of these different documents, to be able to touch the documents that Du Bois was touching to be able to see the actual manuscript, the Black Man and the Wounded World manuscript that Du Bois was laboring on for, for, for two decades, to see how he was literally cutting and pasting little scraps of paper, little scraps of text onto the pages, which would comprise the various chapters of, uh, of the book, uh, of the manuscript, um, to see how they had become faded um, over time. Um, you know, the, the brittle um, pages, uh, you know, it was just really uh, a very kind of visceral, you know, tactile uh, experience, which uh, I think allowed me to, to bring the story to life uh, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was just looking at, at the microfilm. Yeah, and this is something that I think only historians geek out about, but but digitizing documents is wonderful. I'm able to access things in Geneva and London without having to leave my house, but you you do miss that in in looking at a PDF on screen rather than holding a document in your hand. It is a different experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me ask you about a couple of other things. When when I do uh, a book, every time I do a book and it's done and it's published. I always reflect for a minute and I try to think, okay, what lessons from writing this book would I apply to my next book? What lessons do you think you learned from Torchbearers that you applied to this book? And what lessons from this book do you think you'll apply to the next one? And we can talk about what that next one is in just a second. <laughs> sure. Well, I think writing Torchbearers of Democracy uh, gave me the confidence to, to write um, the wounded world. Um, it allowed me to 
develop a sense of the magnitude of, of World War One, the experiences of, of African Americans in the war, uh, the particular experiences of Black soldiers and veterans. So having that historical foundation, uh, that knowledge was, I think, very important for me as I stepped into writing um, my next book, uh, The Wounded World. Um, being able to uh, familiarize myself with the enormity of Du Bois, all of his work, his scholarship, everything that's been written uh, about uh, Du Bois, uh, that certainly was uh, something that I, I had to immerse myself in, in writing uh, The Wounded World. Um, I think one of the, the big lessons that I would take away from from writing The Wounded World, first of all, never write anything about Du Bois because it'll take you too long to, <laughs> to do. <laughs> so I'm never going to write about Du Bois again. <laughs> um, yeah, but you no, say I that now. It, you say that now. <laughs> I, I say that now, right? Um, but, but in all seriousness, I think as, as we've been, been talking, give yourself the, the space, the, the time, the freedom, the grace to let your, your research and your writing evolve. I think if I had tried to rush this book, it would not have turned out the way that it did. Um, I think if I had tried to condense my my research uh, and to um, you know be very hasty with with my writing, uh, it would not have turned out the the way it did. Uh, so you know some books are going to take longer than others uh, to write, uh, and I think uh, accepting that uh, reality uh, and being okay with it is is an important lesson that I think I'll take uh, to uh, to my future works. Yeah, patience is not something that comes particularly easily to certain academics once you I mean I could see that fire in your eyes in that in that van ride from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham and you I, I could see it in your eyes how, how anxious you were to get involved yeah. I could hear it in your voice and you're <laughs> right you do you do have to take that step back and kind of let the project come to you but it, yeah. it isn't an easy thing to do so those are those are I think wise words yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so what is the next project do you know yet or are you going to take a breather and and work on promoting this one for a bit. Yeah, well, I'm definitely going to enjoy the process of, of promoting this book and talking about it. Um, you know, I think it definitely has some legs, uh, so uh, I'm going to run with it. Um, but yeah, starting to, to think about some future projects. Uh, I'm interested kind of in the 1930s and 40s period, especially the role of different uh, Black intellectuals and, and activists um, in historically black colleges uh, like Howard University and, and, and Lincoln University in the 1930s uh, and 40s. Um, also interested in thinking about kind of the history of black studies, its development in 1968, 1969, um, maybe connecting it to some of the current debates uh, about African-American studies, uh, the teaching of, of black history that we're engaged in uh, today. Uh, so there may be a, a book or two uh, in there um, but for the for the for the moment, um, I'm enjoying talking about the the wounded world and, and and Du Bois. Well, we're running low on time here, but I do want to ask you a question that I always love asking my smart friends, and that is, what books are you reading right now? What books are are inspiring you, or something you've read that you picked up a trick or two from? What what's what what what, what are you reading? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've been reading too much too much uh, Du Bois lately. Um, one, one of the books that I'm excited to, to start reading, uh, Thomas uh, Rix's book, 
um, on on the civil rights movement, uh, where he uh, looks at the civil rights movement in the context of of warfare um, and the ways in which uh, the civil rights movement and the um, the activists uh, who were part of, of the civil rights movement in the 1960s kind of really saw themselves as soldiers uh, in uh, a larger battle for our civil rights and democracy in the United States. So, um, so yeah, Thomas Thomas Ricks's book, I think "Waging a Waging a Good War," I believe is the mm. name of them. I'm looking forward to. Jonathan Fennell wrote a book on the Second World War and British soldiers that makes much the same argument that their their ideology for fighting had as much to do with change at home as it did with with ideological change overseas. So, yeah, right. an, another area for a book that next time we're on an airport shuttle together, you and I can maybe discuss. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chad, thanks again for joining us. Uh, the book is fantastic. I wish you nothing but the greatest of success. It's always a great pleasure talking to you, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Likewise. Really appreciate it, Mike. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this episode and send us suggestions for future episodes. You can subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcaster of choice. Please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is done, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from The War Room, I'm Michael Nyberg. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.